Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I begin by acknowledging that we broadcast on stolen, unceded lands, the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to Elders past and present and to the Elders of the lands on which this show reaches. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. On today's show, I'll be joined by Dr. Jackie Huggins to speak about her recently published new edition of her profoundly influential book, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation, which has just been reissued through the University of Queensland Press. And a little bit later in the show, I'll be sharing a story from All the Best, a weekly audio storytelling show created by FBI Radio in Sydney, in association with a bunch of other community radio stations like CN and Triple R here in Melbourne. This week's story comes from Yemen, who has been separated from her family for three years due to COVID. She finds herself longing for the food that reminds her of her and her life in China, of her family and her life in China. Very excited for this next interview. Aboriginal people have been excluded from the pages of white history and denied access to the records of their own people. There do exist in these historical accounts of what occurred throughout Australian history many examples of Aboriginal involvement in the blazing of trails, in the establishment of settlements and in every area of Australian advancement. However, they are hidden within the historical accounts that exist. They remain nameless men and women. This is an excerpt from the recently published edition of the profoundly influential book, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation. Within these pages are almost four decades of writing on identity, leadership, activism and reconciliation. And this collection challenges accepted notions of mainstream feminism and pushes back against white historians' accounts of Aboriginal history. Joining me today, I am very honoured to have writer, historian, activist, member of the Bijara and Birigabajura peoples, Dr Jackie Huggins, to speak all about her book. Jackie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Well, and thank you very much, Beth, for, uh, for having me. It's great to be here. It is so wonderful to chat with you. Jackie, I'd love to know, first and foremost, the first edition of this book was published 24 years ago. You know, these issues throughout the book seem ever-present and relevant. Can you tell me why why bring it back now? Yes, I, I, it's really important, I think, to um, know where we've come from and, and knowing uh, the present and, and where we're going to. But it was uh, primarily for me... Um, I was very interested in um, handing it over to a new generation of uh, of Indigenous writers uh, in our country and and people who um, were thought agents and um, wanted to, you know, put their uh, thoughts to paper and... um, 
uh, and, and have it read by um, the wider community. So it, for me, it was um, it was about time. I think there were uh, some of the very foundational uh, pieces that I've done in the book that haven't uh, really changed one bit, mm. and others where I've seen um, some change, but. Uh, there's still a long way to go. Mm. So I thought I'd add my chorus to the very um, important but growing number now of uh, First Nations writers and um, and uh, artists that are trying to uh, explore and to deliver and, and to really, um, you know, always on about um, it's an education, a wider education of the community. Mm. So um, for me, I thought, well, you know, COVID had uh, uh, had been around and is around still. So I had some time to really uh, rethink and to really uh, to have some uh, ideas about um, uh, about the next steps. But uh, primarily, it is um, it, it is a book that I think um, is still very relevant today, and uh, and that young younger writers can. Um, perhaps being inspired by and, and do something themselves. It's a book of uh, largely essays. It's very... Um, uh, it's not chronological by any means. It's uh, it's not subject-driven, but it's... You can actually random pick uh, what you wish to... or what you wish to read and um, have thoughts about that. And I have to tell you, Beth, there's a few of my friends who have uh, had COVID and tried to read it after that, and uh, they said they were still, uh, unfortunately, in a bit of brain fog there, mm. and some of the intense historical aspects of it was kind of um, uh, a bit hard to read, um, and they needed to come back uh, come back and read it. But that's fine. That's uh, It's all good. It's all part of the reading and the learning Absolutely, and I think it's one of the great joys of books that you can, you know, put it down and, and pick it up when you are able and ready to, to read it. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Jackie, you are a historian. That very much comes through in the way that you write and the way that you've documented so many, uh, so much history throughout these pages. Before we jump into this edition, I'd love to know when you did release it all those years ago, what are your memories of its release and, and how it was received then? Oh, that's a really good question, Beth, and thank you very much for asking me that because back then there were just a handful of writers, certainly no one that was writing in, in my genre. And uh, most of the books then were um, life stories and, you know, the wonderful uh, Rabbit Proof Fence, Doris Pilkington. There were other poets as well. Um, and... I thought, oh, well, you know, I've got a platform, I've got some things to say here. And uh, when I put it out, um, to tell you the truth, there wasn't much interest at all. Mm. Um, uh, That is uh, incredibly changed now, I think. And I'll be so bold to state that uh, probably in the last, uh, since I launched it in the last three weeks, uh, you know, I've sold as much copies as I've done in 24 years of Sister Girl. Now, that might be an understatement, but I think it goes to um, uh, the knowledge that, you know, there are far more people out there that are willing to um, uh, to read and to learn and to um, uh, to look at 
some of those really hard topics, you know, those really unpalatables of our history and to be open to it. But mm. I must say, back in... Um, in uh, 1998 um, and through that time uh, there was very little interest so it's really nice to see a bit of a renaissance of uh, and a resurgence of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander work in the domain and uh, that that's being picked up now and um, and uh, and read so, so it's, it's been yeah very very interesting to think back then and how it is now yep yeah, well, it's a, it's a great shame that it wasn't uh, as celebrated as it should have been um, when it was first released, but I'm very glad to hear that uh, people are really getting behind it this time around and hopefully, as you said, it speaks to uh, people's readiness perhaps to really deal with and confront uh, the histories that exist from this country. Um, so, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, Jackie, you know, your family history and your and your personal history are really central to the work that you've done and, and that you do do. I'm interested, you know, in reflecting on writing your mother's life story, you write about the importance of oral storytelling as a way to collect stories within Aboriginal communities um, and also about how necessary it was to kind of read between the lines of official documentation that has been written about Aboriginal people but not necessarily by them. You know, you wrote your mother's biography um, and you, 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 you say that it's uh, you consider it writing that is... Um, the Liberated, writing about The Liberated. Um, and I know that you're also working on your father's biography, which is set to come out later this year. Can you tell me about the experience of, of writing these two biographies and, and how it's kind of informed uh, your work as a historian? Yes, well, it's very interesting. I've always been a great reader of um, non-fiction and biography. And for me, uh, as like uh, many writers, you know, your first book will always kind of be uh, autobiographical mm. uh, in nature or someone in the family that you know. And hence um, my mother's book, uh, Auntie Rita, which came out in uh, 1994, actually, um, was was the kind of um, life writing that I wanted to do. But it needed to be, I thought, coupled by the historical records. And my training as a historian as well has a lot to do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, the historical records that could be found in the State Library and uh, found uh, in the archives here uh, in Queensland. Um, but at the same time, the very rich tapestry of oral history uh, came through with my mother because uh, we had her for 14 months uh, until she passed, mm-hmm. uh, promoting and uh, talking about the book. But prior to that, I had seven years in terms of uh, writing the book with her and putting her on tape. So the oral stuff was really important and um, really rich. Now, with my father's book, of course, he died when I was two, so I didn't have that physicalness. I had... um, uh, but I had stories from my mother every single day about my father and what he would say or what he would be thinking. So very much then, I, you know, we always thought we grew up with our father mm. as well, although he was um, absent in in the um, the physical sense, but always around the spiritual. So um, I had to rely very much on historical records from um, uh, and war memorial um uh, the, the, the records from the War Memorial, from Trove, from um, 
uh, you know, other bits and pieces uh, from libraries to really inform um, his his path and his journey, particularly as he went uh, up to uh, the uh, Thai Boomer Railway. Um, and the records are fairly scarce there uh, anyway. But um, look, had a fantastic uh, woman helping us with the um, um, military history. Um, and, uh, you know, Katrina did a fine job and it was really nice. It was fairly easy then for me to, to write all that stuff in. So, yes, you know, you had a person that was with you and another person that lived on in your memory. So, um, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty significant. And um, I, I think I'm probably the only um, person, if not in Australia, perhaps the world or around the world, They've ever written a biography about their mother and their father too, mm. and uh, people have told me that's a very brave thing to do. Absolutely, and I think it's it, it seems so foundational to your your work as a historian. And I just love being able to kind of look back at your own history and then kind of even go broader. You know, throughout this collection, you really situate your pieces within your own research as a historian. As you said, there's a lot that have been collected through oral histories. Um, by interviewing uh, different Aboriginal people. I'm thinking of um, one of the parts of your book, White Apron, Black Hands, which in which you kind of portray what life was like for um, Aboriginal women in the early half of the last century. Can you speak about uh, that piece and, you know, what, it, yeah, what your research was and, and what it was like to document those stories? Yes, well, uh, back in those days, there was nothing, uh, of course, written about this. And um, my lecturer at the University of Queensland at the time, um, Raymond Evans, suggested to me I could write my uh, independent final um, history piece on that. Uh, so I did, and I'm very glad I did, because it, it uh, allowed me to speak to at least half a dozen of our dear, wonderful, strong and powerful Aboriginal women who are, are sadly no longer with us, but to get their stories down mm. about how they were treated um, uh, within the, the domestic um, uh, the domestic scene, um, servant scene. Now um, uh, that was, and I, and I combined it, as you said, with the um, historical accounts and, and and the records, and they told me quite openly and honestly about, uh, you know, the brutality that was meted out to them, um, particularly by women, um, white women, uh, and of course uh, white men. Of course, it was. Um, uh, you know, without reading too much into it, I'm sure there was um, it there was a sexual abuse that uh, happened uh, within that. You know, let alone there was physical uh, punishment uh, and um, psychological punishment as well. Uh, you know, sort of not not thinking that they took these children away. I mean, my mother was only 14 when she went to um, work out at um, a cattle station in Charleville. You know, imagine putting your child onto a train mm -hmm. at 14 and said, you're going to work for these white people now out in uh, Charleville. And that was the story of many Aboriginal uh, women in, in domestic servants. So, um, you know, it was... Very important, I think, I document this. And I want to say that uh, it's also great when you know that your scholarship is benefiting but is being replicated by others. Mm. And just recently, 
I went to um, South Australia and they had a um, Natalie Harkin and her collaborators had a an exhibition called April uh, Sorrow Sovereignty, and they did the story about their South Australian Aboriginal uh, women domestic servants. And yeah, it's wonderful to pass that on, mm-hmm. very poignant, but it's lovely to have that life in it as well. Absolutely, and just add to the collective histories that make up uh, the history of this country. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Dr Jackie Huggins all about her book Sister Girl, Reflections on Titiism, Identity and Reconciliation. Jackie, something that comes through in a lot of these essays and articles and speeches is the, uh, I suppose, the kind of grappling that you have to do with when you are writing against an archive that has been written by non-Aboriginal people um, and how damaging that can be and also... I suppose your the skill of you as a historian being able to read between those lines. I was interested to read um, the article Respect versus Political Correctness where you kind of dissect the ethical issues of non-Aboriginal people writing about Aboriginal people, you know, something that's happened since colonisation and is rife you know, throughout capital H history, you you give a formula of how it can potentially be done respectfully, you know, focusing on the process of how you do it over the product itself. You know, this one I think was first written in, in 1993. I'm interested how you've perhaps seen this play out since it's first published. Uh, Yes. Well, um, this one, there was a whole, uh, I think for me, the, um, idea of political correctness was kind of floating around at that time and everything, everything that um, uh, Aboriginal people did or wanted to say in in, in the opposite to what was being said about us was somehow um, portrayed as this uh, political um, uh, correctness. Now, um, I, I, I do want to say um, that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of... Um, uh, scholarship and PhDs that have been uh, written uh, about uh, uh, our people. Mm. And I think there is some respect that needs to be taken in terms of uh, uh, doing this respectfully, um, but not, um, you know, not uh, overly uh, really controlling the narrative mm. uh, on it. So I use uh, words in, in this one that, um, you know, uh, where we have been very um, very suppressed and, and stereotyped um, as Aboriginal people and those horrible words that were uh, used to uh, to describe us. And, uh, you know, I think language is, is very important mm-hmm. and uh, we need to uh, take, take heed of that. But, um, yeah, the formula um, around that is is that um, when you write something, you should um, always be, you know, very mindful that, um, um, you know, you have empathy. The really important thing is that you've got to research properly um, that pro- uh, that project or those people and, and come back and, and inform people. You know, if you're taking their stories, you've got to get back to them. Like in, in my um, father's book, I spoke to about half a dozen um, uh, family members whose um, uh, uncles and fathers were in the um, Second World War. Now, I wasn't going to just take their stories and put it down 
and not allowed them to see what I had written. Um, so I sent it back, which is the right thing to do. Uh, had it ticked off. Some of them changed it. They said, no, we don't want this or that. And, um, uh, you know, that was fair enough too. So I felt, um, you know, it's, it's been that was a, a really good um, outcome for all of us. And um, the, the, the last thing is around the um, idea that the material has got to really empower uh, rather than disempower uh, Indigenous people. And uh, by that, I mean... You know, we're tired of the deficit language, although that's all part of our history too. Um, and we want to see some of the um, the joys and, and the agency and, and the resilience that um, our people have used to get through uh, their lives, you know, when their lives have been so battered around by government policy and uh, racism mm. and prejudice, etc., uh, etc. Et mm. So um, I think it's really important when, as a non-Indigenous writer, you know, you adhere to these things. Mm. Absolutely, and I think it's it's a great one to read for anybody that is working, as a non-Indigenous person working with uh, Indigenous people and their stories. Um, Jackie, you've also written extensively on the women's movement and particularly the relationship between mainstream feminism and and Aboriginal women. Um, You know, you speak about the need for white women to give up power in order to move towards reconciliation and addressing, you know, the anti-blackness and racism that exists within this country and beyond. You know, this was really highlighted um, in a transcribed conversation that you had with a prolific writer and thinker, the late Bell Hooks. Can you speak to this conversation and I suppose how you've seen things change, if at all, since that conversation with Bell Hooks? Yes, well, way back then, um, uh, there was really no one in this country that was doing the kind of um, theory or the um, the work that I, I wanted to do in this space. Gender studies, or well, we called it women's studies in those days, you know, were really high on the agenda, and uh, there wasn't ever, there would hardly ever be an article by a black woman, let alone you know a woman of colour uh, as well. So I thought, oh, there's a niche there. I can probably uh, write to that. Um, my heroes were absolutely Audrey Lord and Bell Hooks um, and Alice Walker. Um, and I was, um, I was ecstatic when um, uh, I was able to do that uh, ABC uh, interview with, um, with uh, Bell. And we talked about, you know, how we felt. It was very, very... Um, clear that we both felt the same way in terms of the exclusion and, um, you know, are all the women of white, because it was white Anglo women at that time in the 80s that were calling the shots and that were uh, doing the um, uh, doing the business, like, without us, just kind of ignoring us and shifting us to one side. I mean, and to be fair, there might have been pockets of um, women who were... Um, allowing us some space, but that's about giving up that power. Mm. And uh, when, um, when when we did this, um, it was a wonderful exchange that we had talking together because I could really um, test my ideas and, um, uh, you know, to know that um, what Belle was thinking uh, as well. And uh, as you say, sadly, she, she passed away um, mm. uh, a, a couple of months ago, actually, and... Um, 
I'd felt like, you know, I'd lost uh, one of my family members because mm. that um, that instruction was so deep and so so um, real for me. And uh, it gave me the drive, actually, to keep writing um, my issues around feminism. Um, and it's uh, how it's changed now is that I think, you know, Jen, Jen um, X and um, X, Y and Z... Um, if there are three of them, <laughs> uh, well, the later, the young women now are, are not accepting that anymore. I think they are coming through and, um, you know, they are really um, uh, challenging um, the status quo. And I do see some change, you know. I don't think it's quick enough. Mm. Um, but there's not enough... Well, there, there's not that covert, um, you know, hush and uh, how, do you, how dare you say this mm. from um, the then radical feminists in those days. So there's a bit more of a... I'm not saying it's fantastic and rosy cosy, but uh, mm. there's a lot more awareness, and I, I think that's a great thing. Mm. I love hearing how Bell Hooks encouraged you to kind of keep writing. I think that's amazing to hear, and I think I'm sure that you are that for so many, um, for so many people, so many Aboriginal women in particular. Um, Jackie, you know, you've done uh, so much work around reconciliation in this country. You, you're the former member of the National Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, co-chair Reconciliation Australia, among a bunch of other roles. I'm interested how you see the relationship between your record-keeping work as a historian and your activism. What is that relationship for you? Yes, it's still very, uh, very important. I'm um, actually I, I'm the uh, patron for Reconciliation Queensland Incorporated, along with um, Dame Quentin Bryce. So you know we've still got a, a great hand in in terms of how we'd like to see, you know, this this country um, uh, this country go forward. Um, in terms of, you know, the record keeping, um, it'll always be at the back of my mind because, you know, it's, it, it, what that actually does is that if people think you're, you're just making things up and so forth, you know, you're able to, you know, bring out the evidence. And um, as a trained historian, I, I like to do that all the time because people then can't say that, oh, really, really did the stolen generation, um, did they really exist or how long was it for? I mean, it's all there in, in, in black and white, you know, if people would even... Uh, bothered to read it and that's only an example of uh, other things or things like oh how bad is uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody is it really that bad yeah well people just need to go and um, read it and uh, research it a bit uh, because it's all contained there it's all it's all in the record the written record but the oral history I think through um, I think it trumps and adds the rich, the rich tapestry to um, to what people read around um, around combining those two narratives together. Mm. And Jackie, of course, your book is is a huge part of that uh, as well. Uh, Dr. Jackie Huggins, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. I've really enjoyed this. Great. Uh, Dr. Jackie Huggins there talking all about her book, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. That's right, you are listening to Triple R. This next story comes from All the Best, which you may hear on this show. It is something I play every month. It is a show where emerging Australian audio storytellers uh, get to learn how to make stories. It's a weekly podcast and community radio show that's produced uh, in association with FBI Radio in Sydney, CN and Triple R here in Melbourne and a bunch of others. This next story comes from their latest episode called A Long Way From Home. Uh, Earlier in Feb marked the start of the Lunar New Year. It's the year of the tiger, a symbol of bravery and strength. Something it feels that something it feels like we all need right now to face an uncertain world. Due to easing restrictions in Australia, many were able to celebrate the the spring festival with family again. But with international travel still difficult, some are spending yet another year a long way from home. Newman has been separated from her family for three years and she finds herself longing for the food that reminds her of her life in China. And when Newman decides to make hot pot for her Australian family, she finds a new way to connect to her home away from home. Mum and Dad miss you. We have been sleeping on your bed for more than 10 days. One week ago, I received this message from my dad. He was a bit tipsy on the day of my mom's birthday. Normally, my dad is not an expressive person, even after drinking. My mom told me some nights when he comes home from drinking, he will walk directly into my bedroom and lay on my bed for a few minutes. Sometimes, he would just huddle his body together back to my mom, remaining silent as my mother asked, if he's okay. He's missing me. It's a Chinese father's love, not talkative, but deep. I left China two years ago to pursue my master's degree here. In the global pandemic, I missed my parents' birthday twice and missed Spring Festival twice, which will soon become three times. For me, being away from home for a long time faded many memories of the past. But one kind of memory remains strong and fresh. Food memory. When the feeling of homesickness is getting stronger and stronger, one month ago, on a normal Saturday afternoon, after the familiar comfort of eating hot pot with a group of foreign people, I feel like I was going back to China and reconnecting with my family, a familiar place, and a sense of belonging. That's the power of food memory, and it's about Chinese person using it to shorten the distance between her hometown and wherever she is. Hot pot, this popular Chinese dish, was introduced from the Zhou Dynasty over 2,000 years ago. To me, it's more than food. It's the epitome of my family. I like tomato-based soup, with a combination of sesame oil and sauce, it's fresh, sweet, and sour. My mom likes the nami and intimate eating Sichuan spicy soup, a traditional Beijing hot pot with the characteristics of northern Chinese cuisine is always my dad's favorite. Hot pot, 
no matter how different our taste is, a three or four grit pot can please us easily. So from a very young age, my family went to Chinese restaurants. It was like a sort of false kind of culture. They served a lot of fried rice with spam in it, as well as a lot of different dishes. Anthony Cap, a typical Australian, and my boyfriend, didn't have many chances to try the type of food that Chinese people will ordinarily eat. For me, hot pot tastes like home, family, and safety. But for him, it was sort of an alien food. I think my experiences with eating Chinese food have regularly happened around 2018, which was my final year of my undergraduate degree. I took a subject researching various topics in China. During that trip, Anthony and his groupmates entered a franchise hot pot restaurant. So we got all the ingredients and kind of went crazy. The flavor was not quite anything I'd had before. It had a certain unique kind of spice and aroma to it. Oh, and there was a dancing noodle guy. Wait, a dancing noodle guy? Yeah, there was a guy who was dancing around with the noodles, twirling the noodles all over the place. So that was definitely an experience. Apart from the dancing noodle guy, Anthony learned a valuable lesson. I was drinking too much soup. It tastes pretty good. I don't mind that, but if you drink too much of it, your stomach won't thank you for it. The morning after, I went for a walk, and I realized I was in trouble, and so I ended up running home.、Uh, but I didn't quite make it.、Uh, there was a lot of cleaning up to be done. I hope he learned that hot pot soup is not for drinking after that. Anthony didn't have much hot pot upon returning to Australia. After all, in Melbourne, there are not so many hot pot restaurants in the southeast suburbs where he lives. However, he soon found a new reason to. When I started seeing Iman, I found myself being reintroduced to hot pot. We decided that one day Iman and I would come over to my family's house to share dinner with them. We would bring her hot pot equipment over and cook for them. Hot pot is not a complex dish to make. When we got there, we started to wash everything and cut up all the vegetables. We had beef, lamb, seafood, and vegetables, such as potatoes, radishes, mushrooms, and some greens. Once each ingredient is prepared, we make our homemade sauce with sesame oil, soy sauce, garlic, and things like that. How many garlics do you want? After that, it's just a matter of frying up the stove, pouring slightly spicy hot soup in, and waiting for it to boil.
the soup is boiling. Sounds easy? The real challenge is none of his family members had experienced hot pot before. Um, Anthony had talked about hot pot and you're cooking hot pot, but I didn't really understand what it was. Anthony's mom Jennifer is right. It took a while for Anthony's parents and two brothers to get the ingredients in the pot, let them simmer, and add another round of vegetables and meat comfortably. We started off putting the food in for them one by one, but before too long, the others got the gist of it. It was pretty messy, though. I did splash the soup on him in a few times. But once night started flying by, the atmosphere was lively. I found that like it was good because everyone was you know, sitting around a table and focusing on something that had been made that everyone could communally grab and like take bits and pieces and eat rather than everyone focused on their own meals like we normally have. That was Anthony's brother and this is Anthony's dad. I think hot pot is a food that it lends itself to a family or a group of friends gathering and eating together. I think it's important. I always love the hot pot's consist warmth as it kept simmering throughout the entire meal. Unsurprisingly, I was feeling at home that night. But I can't stop asking. Apart from the meal setting and the taste of familiarity, what made me feel at home exactly? It's great to learn different things about different cultures and also learning that we are all the same because, you know, when you don't meet people from different cultures or don't know people from different cultures, you don't really understand. But when, like meeting you, um, learned a lot about your culture and that you really are not much different. Um, I mean, you have different ways in some, you know, different food, different um, ways, but still the same. Jennifer found the answer for me. They were willing to embrace our differences with arms outstretched. And through this, I feel welcomed in spite of the differences in our language and culture. Then I asked Anthony's dad what it means to him that his son has a Chinese girlfriend. Ooh, well, that, that's a good question. My son Anthony has a Chinese girlfriend, and I think that is wonderful. Do I think it is different or novel or interesting? I think it is, but I think it isn't. Our culture is so enriched by the number of people that come into Australia from a variety of areas, and and I think it is quite normal and quite expected that we should mix together. When Elsta was talking, Anthony's mother made the shape of a heart with her hands and there was a warm smile on her face on the other side of the living room. When the moonlight was shining into the house, being around them, the hot pot was not only a dinner, a social event. It was about me finding another home on the other side of the ocean. That night, I came home and made video call to my parents. I said, Mom and Dad, I can't express how much I look forward to the reunion with you. The day we eat our favorite hot pot together. The day I wouldn't need to cook hot pot by myself. A day like I never really left.
You're listening to Triple R. That was Hot Pot by Yimin Chiang. Uh, we're supervising production from Mal Chun. If you would like to get involved in all the best, learn how to make your own audio stories. They're always accepting pitches. You can head to allthebestradio.com to find out more. That is it for me today. You have been listening to The Glass House. My name is Beth. Big thanks to my guest, Dr. Jackie Huggins, for speaking to, with me all about the recent reissue of her wonderful book, Sister Girl, Reflections on Titaism, Identity and Reconciliation, and, of course, Yimin Chiang for their story there on All the Best. Hey, make sure you keep it locked to Triple R. I'll catch you next week. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website 